is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It is the fourth of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Although in the Septuagint arrangement it came fifth, it was placed fifth. Again, <clears throat> it's interesting to note the order in which the Holy Spirit finally placed uh, these books. Amos, with his severe and stern message of judgment, is introduced by the much softer and more sympathetic tones of Hosea first, and then the slightly more, uh, uh, slightly more firm and sterner tones of Joel. But both of those prophets, both Hosea and Joel, their accent is on the mercy of God, the mercy of the Lord, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord. Their accent, though they deal, both of them with judgment, their accent is uh, upon, their emphasis is upon the love and the grace and the faithfulness of God. And they introduce us to the prophet Amos. Now in Obadiah, we look more deeply into this whole question of judgment. We look at it from a totally different angle now. It's as if having had the plain, clear, straight message of Amos, and the Holy Spirit seeking to clear up our warped and perverted ideas about judgment, now the ground is clear for us to understand a little more, not of the principle of judgment, but of the cause of judgment. We have got to understand that judgment is not a caprice of God, something <clears throat> merely capricious on his part. We have got to understand that judgment is absolutely necessary. It is a logical and inevitable harvest of something which is, which is sown. We've got to see, you see, that the principle of judgment is that God judges according to the light which he gives a nation, or a people, or a family, or an individual. He judges his own on an entirely different basis. He judges them uh, in the light of their relationship to himself. That's the difference in his judgment of the world and his judgment of his own. But that's only the principle of judgment. We have now got to look more deeply into the root cause of judgment. Uh, and Obadiah has been given to us as if it needs to be emphasized that judgment is a necessary and logical effect of a cause. I cannot overestimate that. Judgment is the logical effect of a cause. It's remarkable <clears throat> that, con that the controversy that has raged over this 
over these 21 verses of the book of Obadiah is out of all proportion to its size. And most remarkable controversy has raged over this little uh, fragment of a book, uh, which is still raging uh, today. At a first and a superficial glance and reading, Obadiah may seem to have very little to say uh, in every way. In fact, we might even be tempted to ask or to question why indeed this uh, book has been included uh, in Scripture at all. Many indeed have done so. Because of one or two other remarkable facts. One of the things is this, that this book is almost half of it, anyway, is almost, um, almost half of it is repeated in the book of Jeremiah. In other words, we've already had half the book of uh, Obadiah, and so we may have even more ground for questioning what exactly it's doing in here as a separate book. And secondly, the other half of the book of Obadiah, just over a half, um, has been repeated already, uh, if not in so many words. The thought or the theme of it has already been repeated. And it might be that, that people ask themselves, well, what is the meaning of this book? So many people read it, and they wonder, well, what is exactly the meaning of this little book? I don't quite understand. It's all about some nation that's vanished off the face of the earth. And uh, anyway, all that has been say said in it has been said. What really is the point? But you see, so often, as we've said before, the smaller books of the Bible contain the greatest treasure. And this is certainly not untrue concerning the little book of Obadiah. If the Holy Spirit says something, in however so small a compass he says it, we must explore it and discover what is the meaning of it. If the Holy Spirit says something and only says it in two or three sentences, it's incumbent upon us to explore the meaning of those sentences and why they were said. But it is even more important to recognize that if the Holy Spirit repeats something already said, it is even more important that we get hold uh, of the truth. There is nowhere in the scripture that something is repeated without a meaning or a reason. Whenever something is repeated again, it is always for a very real reason. And so here again we've got some, uh, we've got to study the book of Obadiah more seriously than ever. <clears throat> Obadiah makes us realize that even under the old covenant, there was a ministry to those without the covenant. Sometimes people question whether, in fact, we should ever go out to the unsaved, ever touch those who are outside of the covenant grace of God, whether, in fact, they shouldn't all flock to us. But it is a most interesting fact that even under the Old Covenant, there was a ministry to those without the Covenant. Even in those exclusive days, when God was confined to a nation and to a land and to the boundaries of that land, yet still, at times in their history, the history of God's people, he spoke to the other nations. Of course, in some of the other prophets, 
Um, we have <clears throat> in their ministry to God's people, they have in part spoken to other nations. You've got Isaiah, you have uh, Ezekiel, you have Jeremiah, and of course we can go through many others. In the course of their ministry, <clears throat> in the main directed and given to God's people, uh, they have spoken to other nations. They've had a ministry to what we would call the unsaved nations. But uh, Obadiah is exclusively given, as far as we can see from this little book, exclusively given to a ministry to those without the covenant. And if anyone is disposed to disagree, then next week, the Lord willing, we come to the little book of Jonah, who didn't even, as far as we can see, uh, utter his ministry in the land of Judah. His whole ministry was taken up with Nineveh, and he had an attitude that many of us have got about the unsaved, uh, about those without, that, well, it's best really to leave it there. They're not really worth bothering much about, and it's a bit of a bind to have to uh, go out and uh, uh, take them the word of life. Um, this, then, the book of Obadiah, is preparing us to understand that God is far more concerned about those who, who do not know him than are his people for them. Obadiah is the first to exclusively deal with an unsaved people. The book is written in good Hebrew, and Obadiah's style is austere and also plain although it's not lacking in either energy or in straightness. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, a wonderfully eloquent style, such as Joel or some of the other prophets, but nevertheless, it, there's nothing wrong in it. It's plain, uh, direct, uh, austere. There is no reference whatsoever in the New Testament to the book of Obadiah. It's one of the books that's <coughs> quoted once. Now, what about the authorship? Here we come to the problem. <clears throat> um, by the grace of God, I seem to do my best to explain it. The book claims to be the vision of Obadiah. If you look at verse 1, it is, says it is the vision of Obadiah. But in actual fact, that doesn't help us very much because we know absolutely nothing about Obadiah. Uh, <clears throat> and there is nothing that connects Obadiah to any of the other Obadiahs in the Old Testament. There are 11 Obadiahs in the Old Testament, but as we view each one of them, one by one, they are all uh, annihilated, eliminated from any possible connection with this Obadiah. Um, some uh, scholars have tried to link him with a certain prince who was sent by Jehoshaphat to teach in the provinces, um, but even that's not very uh, persuasive. Um, nor have we any clear clue uh, given as to the date of this prophecy. We have no date given and no unambiguous uh, uh, clue uh, to the date. Thus, controversy has raged over Obadiah and dates have been given to it that are as far apart as 600 years. 
the range, and this will show you how what a controversy can can rage over such a little book. Um, scholars, reputable, godless scholars, have given dates differing by 600 years to the little book of Obadiah. Nor is that the only thing that controversy rages over, because it rages over the unity of the book as well. Only 21 verses, but there's tremendous controversy about the unity of those 21 verses. Um, many believe that there are at least two distinct prophecies here by different prophets. Uh, some have gone so far as to suggest that they were both uh, by, by different prophets, one before the exile, one after the exile, both called Obadiah. Um, it's rather like Isaiah again. Some people have got the weirdest ideas about splitting up the word of God in this way. But however, there we are. There are others who believe that this little book of 21 verses consists of quite a number of prophecies, all about Edom, by an unknown uh, author. So we could go on. Nevertheless, over against that, we must state this, that the unity of the style, as well as the unity of the theme, the compact, energetic directness of the whole book, these whole 21 verses compel us to regard it as a unity. And today there are many more who now have, come, have settled to it being uh, a distinct unity. Uh, it's quite obvious that it is to do with an overthrowing and a plundering of Jerusalem. If you read from verse 10 right down to verse 14, it's quite clear that it is to do with an overthrowing of uh, Jerusalem. In verses 5 to 7, um, Obadiah is using what we call the prophetic perfect. That is, he is speaking about the future destruction of Edom as if it were already past. Now, in the same way, he speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem, although past, as if it was still taking place. A most remarkable fact. Um, in the revised version, I don't know how many of you got the revised version, or the standard version, you will see that verses 12 to 14 are all imperatives. Look not. Boast not. Enter and that is absolutely correct. The Hebrew is an imperative, all in imperatives, all those verses. But in actual fact, this is one of the instances where the authorized version was correct because it was a rhetorical device of the prophet. And in fact, the revised standard version has gone back to the authorized version, a translation, and has translated it, you should not have gloated, you should not have looked, you should not have boasted, you should not have entered in to the gates, and so on. Um, so the thing we are establishing is this, that the prophet is talking about the future destruction of Edom. It hadn't come to pass. But he is talking about the participation of the Edomites in a terrible dis uh, plundering 
and uh, destroying of Jerusalem. Now that gives us at least a clue to a date. However, when we look into the word of God, we find four occasions when uh, Jerusalem was overthrown uh, and, and plundered. The first is in the reign of Rehoboam. I better point this out to you. Um, in the reign of Rehoboam, when the king of Egypt, Shishak, came up against Rehoboam and took Jerusalem and ravaged it, that you will find in 1 Kings 14.25, if you want to look this up and establish it yourselves. Uh, the second occasion was in the reign of Jehoram. Um, Jehoram's not in here, it came after Jehoshaphat. Um, I put that because we can't get it all in the board. Um, that was when the Philistines and the Arabians took uh, Jerusalem and again plundered it. Now that's very interesting because the Edomites had a big part to play in that particular uh, uh, plundering of, uh, Jeru of Jerusalem. If you want to look up that, that is 2 Chronicles 21, 8 to 10 and 16 and 17. Then another a time was in the reign of Amaziah when again Jerusalem was plundered and ravaged. At this time, strangely enough, it was the northern kingdom of uh, Israel that plundered uh, their sister Judah. And then again, the last occasion was the reign of Zedekiah when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, the famous siege of 586 BC, for three years until finally it was completely razed to the ground. The people, the whole nation were deported and uh, it was the end of history for Judah. There is one other occasion that some scholars um, mention, and it is the reign of Ahaz. <coughs> In that particular instance, Jerusalem was not actually taken, but it was um, a time when the Edomites came up against Judah. That you will find in 2 Chronicles 28, 16 to 21. From the evidence that we have, two, that's the reign of Jehoram, and four, the reign of Zedekiah, are the only two that are suitable in any way. That's the reign of Jehoram after Jehoshaphat and the reign of Zedekiah. Those are the only two times that really could apply. The first, Rehoboam, uh, the third, Amaziah, um, and Ahaz, um, for one reason or another, for various reasons, uh, are not suitable. So we have to eliminate them uh, from uh, the possibilities. Obadiah's message, however, if you look at it, implies not a merely temporary defeat and uh, a sort of uh, ravaging of Jerusalem that lasted a week or two and then uh, the armies retired. But if you look at it, it implies that Jerusalem was brought to an almost total end. Um, so if that is the case, it would seem that the only, the only time in, given in God's word that could adequately fulfill the requirements that we have in the prophet of Obadiah would be the reign of Zedekiah, the great sacking and destruction of Jerusalem. 
Now that would seem as if we had got somewhere, but just wait. Here we come up against the difficulties. There are other difficulties. And the most, uh, um, the most serious one is the marked similarity between um, Obadiah 1 to 8, the first eight verses of Obadiah, and Jeremiah chapter 49 from verse 7 to verse 22. If you look at that, any fool can see that the two come, uh, are either borrowed one from the other, or they come from a common source. The interesting thing is that Obadiah 1 to 8 uh, is in a completely different order to Jeremiah 7 to 22. Jeremiah 7 to 22 is seemingly not only put in a different order, the sentences, the verses, but they are expanded. So now we come up against the biggest problem of all, because either Jeremiah borrowed from Obadiah, or Obadiah borrowed from Jeremiah. Um, if um, Obadiah borrowed from Jeremiah, then he, he could indeed have been in the reign of Zedekiah. But if it was vice versa, it means that we've got to give Obadiah an early date. We've got to give him either a date in Jehoram, uh, Amazar, or Ahaz. Well, of course, many scholars have gone into this very thoroughly in a much more qualified way, much more qualified way than I am able to, and um, they have been quite convinced, uh, many of them, that Obadiah took from Jeremiah um, because of the setting of the book of Obadiah. Um, the description of the destruction of Jerusalem, they feel, can only, the majority of scholars feel, can only uh, refer to the reign of Zedekiah and the final destruction of Jerusalem. But when you look at the book of Obadiah, you discover that it seems to be a much more original version than what you have in Jeremiah. It's more simple, it's more concise, it's more consecutive. And therefore it would seem quite clear that Obadiah is the um, original uh, form uh, of this prophecy concerning Edom. I don't know whether you can follow me in all this. And this was the generally held view. Formerly it was widely held. Um, there are many reasons for it, not only its simplicity, the originality of Obadiah's version, but also the early place that Obadiah has in the Twelve, the fact that he's placed so early. Um, they felt that, again, that speaks for an early date. And, again, uh, another point to make, it's preservation. Many scholars have said, why has this little book been preserved at all? Now, if it was an early date... If indeed it came from the reign of Jehoram, then it is the first prophetic book that ever appeared in the Bible. And that would explain why it was preserved. Only 21 verses, but uh, because it was the first that ever appeared, it was preserved. That's the argument for the early dating of Obadiah. So many would place Obadiah before Jeremiah. They would place him in the reign of Jehoram, which is 849 to 842 BC approximately. Others would place him in the reign of Ahaz, 736 to 716 BC. 
There are, however, just as many who believe strongly that Obadiah succeeded Jeremiah. Some suggest that there was an earlier, earlier prophecy concerning Edom, much earlier, and that both Jeremiah and Obadiah <coughs> borrowed from it. That is one of the most commonly held views today, that in fact there was a common source of these two prophecies. Um, both Obadiah took from it and Jeremiah took from it. There is another a suggestion, and I think it's a suggestion that's very worthy of serious reflection. It is that Obadiah and Jeremiah were contemporaries, and in fact, Jeremiah either heard Obadiah or Obadiah heard Jeremiah. I think that's quite possible. I'm sure that if I had a message about some nation near here, and uh, I um, went and heard another uh, person really preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, something, so giving some real light upon that nation, it may well be that I would remember that. Those words would burn into my heart. And when I came to speak, I would find that although it was a different way I was putting it, in fact, um, I, had, I had learned something and taken something uh, from that other servant of the Lord. Um, that may well explain why both versions are different in order, and yet both have so much similarity. Now, if that is so, we've got to recognise that there are, in fact, difficulties inherent in either the early or the late day. Those who believe that Obadiah borrowed from Jeremiah, or that they were contemporaries, naturally believe that Obadiah lived during the fall of Jerusalem and the early part of the exile. But whether we put him as the very first prophet before even Joel, or whether we put him down here in the later ones, um, give him a later date, there are difficulties inherent in both dates. Now, I just want to say this, to close this question, the authorship and the date. I must say that the argument for the late date to me, is very, very strong indeed. I just give four simple reasons why, if the defeat of Jerusalem was on the scale suggested by Obadiah in his prophecy, was it not mentioned, not even mentioned, in Kings, and was only given a passing reference in the book of Chronicles. Now, all of you who remember our studies on the book of Chronicles will remember that anything that affected the city and anything that affected the temple went into the book of Chronicles because the book of Chronicles traces the, the history of the house of God, the dwelling place of God. I want to know why, if there, there, there had been a ransacking and destroying on Jerusalem on the scale that Obadiah suggests, why have we only got a little reference to marauding Philistines and Arabians or the king of Egypt who came up and did a bit of damage and then retired or later on Israel came in and caused some damage? There doesn't seem to be anything. Secondly, why I think there's strong evidence for the late date is that the, the, the defeat of Jerusalem in, in 586 is the only one that adequately fulfills all the requirements uh, in Obadiah's description. Thirdly, and this is most important to me, the picture of Edom's part in that defeat given by other prophets fits in wholly with Obadiah's uh, description. Now, you will find those descriptions in Ezekiel 35, who tells us exactly what the Edomites did, 
at the destruction of Jerusalem. You will find it in Psalm 137 and verse 7. You remember that terrible psalm, which we believe Jeremiah wrote, when they were uh, by the rivers in Babylon, and they said to her, we hung up our harps on the willows. We couldn't sing. And then there's that amazing cry, Lord, remember the Edom, when they said, raise it, raise it to the ground, and destroyed our little ones. So you see, that's, uh, a point to remember. And then there's Lamentations 4, 21 and 22, which again describes the part that the Edomites played in the destruction of Jerusalem. The fourth reason why I think there's strong evidence for the late date is that Jeremiah's prophecy does not make any specific charge against Edom, but Obadiah ties it down to a historical incident. That's why I think that, that Obadiah's is in fact the latter. Um, Jeremiah said something, but in fact, uh, um, Obadiah uh, saw the fulfilment of, of that prophecy. It's also very interesting, and this I only say in passing, that um, uh, Edom is masculine. The Ellison points this out. Edom is masculine. And yet, when Obadiah quotes Jeremiah, um, he puts, we have heard tidings concerning Edom, we've heard tidings from the Lord, rise up, let us rise against her. Now the interesting thing is that in Jeremiah's version that is correct, because the her refers to Bozra, which is feminine. And it would seem as if, in fact, um, Obadiah had taken this from Jeremiah uh, and uh, linked it to Edom when uh, he should have put him. That's another little point, but that's rather technical. The fifth thing is, it's interesting that although Judah is mentioned in the prophecy of Obadiah, there is no question of judgment on her, only um, a question of restoration. Now, you who've been following these studies will remember that whenever God's judgment has fallen on his people, God never mentions judgment again. Once judgment has come, he doesn't mention it. He only speaks about restoration. That's the most remarkable fact. And you remember it in Ezekiel, he spoke about judgment right up to the time when Jerusalem fell, and from that point on, he spoke of um, restoration. Daniel never talks about judgment of God's people at all. All he speaks about is restoration and final triumph. So it would seem, in my estimation, that there's a lot of evidence for the late date for Obadiah. So I would place it, though with a question mark, um, I would place it in the reign of Zedekiah, the fall of Jerusalem, uh, believe that Obadiah lived in this part, in the reign of Zedekiah, through the fall of Jerusalem, and in the early part of the exile. Um, one other thing about Obadiah, the book is in poetic form. Now, do we know anything about the background of Obadiah? Well, as I've already said, we have absolutely no means of knowing who Obadiah was, who his father was, where he came from, where he lived where he was brought up, we know nothing. I've already said there are 11, 11 other occurrences of the name Obadiah uh, in the Old Testament, and it means servant of the Lord. That we do know. Although others, and again, even, there's even controversy over poor Obadiah's name, uh, others would say that it, it is more correctly worshipper of the Lord. Now, if it's worshipper of the Lord, it's very interesting, <coughs> because it makes me wonder whether Obadiah heard heaven. 
and whether in fact there was some kind of link up there, you know, his name, names in scripture often have a very real uh, and symbolic meaning. Do we know anything else about him? It seems reasonable to assume that he lived in Judah. Did the Edomites hear his message? Where did he give his message? Did he give it to Edomites that came to Jerusalem? Was he, for instance, taken into exile? Did he go into Babylon and spend his days in Babylon and minister there? Uh, or was he left, as others suggest, in the land? He was amongst those that were finally left in the land. And the Edomites came and took all southern Judah. Was he then in a position to be able to, um, to speak to them? We don't know. All these, we have no questions. Obadiah is one of the people, when we get to the glory, we shall have to ask a lot of questions, clear up all these difficulties. Um... One thing is clear, that if he did live at the end of Judah's history and during the exile, then Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel and Daniel were his contemporaries. Um, Obadiah's ministry was taken up wholly with Edom. Now, Edom may not mean anything to a lot of you yet. Edom sprang from Esau. Sprang from Esau. And from the beginning... The relationship of Edom to God's people was one of bitterness and of hostility and of vindictive hatred. There is no more terrible account of a family feud in the whole of Scripture than the feud between Esau and Jacob, which was carried on right down uh, and is still in existence uh, to this very day. Um, it's amazing that at hardly any time in the history of Edom and God's people have they been on friendly terms. Isn't that remarkable? The animosity lasted right into the days of the New Testament. We shall say a little bit about that in a moment. And today the animosity still lives on in the hatred of Jew for Arab and Arab for Jew. Well, perhaps you... Most of you perhaps don't realize that the Arabs are the only modern descendants we have of the Edomites and the Ishmaelites. Um, the Edomites encompassed the area directly south of the Dead Sea. I'll just show you that on the map so you get an idea. From this here, directly south, right the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba, this whole mountainous, terribly mountainous, region was um, encompassed by the nation of Edom. Um, they were uh, people uh, who were famed everywhere for their, their roughness, their strength, their cruelty, their lack of compassion, their hardness. Um, they were famed as a very warlike and pugnacious, virile people who lived in the, in the mountains. Uh, one of the characteristics of the Edomites was the rocky fastnesses where they built their homes. They were cave dwellers in many cases, and they lived, as it were, right in the most inaccessible parts of the uh, mountains. Perhaps one of the most remarkable things uh, was their capital. They had two, two great cities, both mentioned in uh, this little book of Obadiah, Bosra 
and Petra or Sila. Sila is the Hebrew, Petra is the Greek, they both mean rock. Um, Timan was the southern district of Edom. All these names are mentioned in this little book of Obadiah. Um, I suppose the most remarkable thing of all, which in many ways aptly symbolized the very character and nature of the Edomites, was their capital, Selah. It was hewn in the most inaccessible spot in the mountains and has become, of course, world famous. It was hewn out of rose-coloured rock. Um, the entrance to it was by a very long and narrow defile which could be easily defended against any assault, and then suddenly you came into a large circular uh, basin, as it were, and there, carved out of all the sides of the mountains, were these remarkable buildings. Uh, in the early days, it was only Selah, uh, an actual uh, flat-topped rock, huge flat-topped rock, which was the um, capital, and when anyone attacked the Edomites, they fled to Selah. Now, that's all in this prophecy. We shall see it in a moment. But later, Petra was to become world famous. And here I have given you, for any who are interested, these remarkable pictures. It's become one of the famous wonders, in a sense, of the ancient world, Petra. Here you come and have a look at it. You'll see sit the, there is the actual uh, mountain I'm telling you about. It's called Sila. And here are the... Um, ways into it and the amazing temples and houses that were absolutely uh, um, carved out of the rock itself. It became a great merchant city, that's the remarkable thing, controlling all the caravan routes in the south. All had to come to Petra. Amazing things, uh, this uh, city. <coughs> of course, it's it being so impregnable, it became an apt symbol of the Edomite people. They looked upon themselves as absolutely inviolate. Proud, hard, cruel, and impregnable. They lived in the mountains, controlled the commerce of the whole of the South, and were in many ways a very secure and proud people. They were also famed for one other thing, not only their cruelty and rapacity, but they were famed for their slave trade. Their name has always been associated with slave traffic. They became the great slave traders of the ancient East. Well, there was a little bit of the background, because all Obadiah's ministry is to do with his people. It's directed to them. Now, what is the key to the book? Can we find anything that will give us a key to this remarkable little book over which controversy is raised? Well, to understand the key, we must understand that this little book, now listen carefully, brings into sharp focus the antagonism and conflict between Esau and Jacob. Now, it's an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit, so late in history, goes right back to the beginnings of both the Edomite people of Edom and of Israel and brings into sharp, clear focus the bitter 
antagonism and conflict between Jacob on the one hand and Esau on the other. And not only the conflict, but brings into sharp focus the difference between these two, Esau and Jacob. Now this is the key to this little book. And if we get hold of it, this little prophecy of Obadiah will be transformed from something belonging to the museum into something which has an absolute up-to-date and dynamic message for every one of us and for the days in which we live. Before even these two were born, they struggled in the womb of their mother. It was a prophecy in itself. Do you remember? She said, the children struggle in my womb. Why don't I die, she said. And then the Lord gave her a key to it. These two struggling in her womb would for the rest of their days, each becoming the leader and the father, the ancestor of a strong nation, they would struggle for all time together. Today, that, that battle in the flesh is still in existence between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants after the flesh of Esau. Of course, when you look into it, it continued right through their lives. You remember how Jacob stole the birthright of Esau, and then how he stole the blessing? Both those things he took. You remember the bitter, vindictive hatred of Esau for his deceiving, uh, soft brother, Jacob. How he hated him. How Jacob had to flee for his life. How all the suffering of Jacob's life was bound up with his attitude to Esau and Esau's attitude to him. And how only in old age were they reconciled and then for very little time. They could never live together in the same area. They always had to see that they were well apart uh, even if they ceased actual fighting. But when you carry it on down, this is the most amazing thing you find. Esau or Edom and Jacob or Israel, the battle between these two lasted down all through the ages. They were never at peace. If ever Edom could take it out on Israel, they did so. And if ever Israel could take it out on Edom, they did so. It reached its high watermark in the fall of Jerusalem. When, the Ed when Edom watched it from afar, then came in and cooperated and finally looted and ransacked uh, Jerusalem, uh, taking part in all the unbelievable cruelty of the destruction of Jerusalem. And finally, and this is the thing that the Jews never forgot, they stood in all the passes around Jerusalem. And as the survivors and fugitives fled from Jerusalem, they slaughtered. And those they didn't slaughter, they, they sold into slavery or gave up to their Babylonian captors. The Jews never forgot that. Hundreds of years later, they were still speaking uh, about what Edom did to uh, them. Their own, as they said, Edom did to their, to their own brother uh, in the day of the destruction of Jerusalem. But here's something that perhaps many of you have forgotten that it came to its most remarkable consummation in the New Testament, when on the one side you had the Lord Jesus as the picture of Jacob, and on the other side 
you have got Herod. Now, do you know that Herod was an Edomite? Jesus never said a single word to Herod in his whole life. The only thing he ever said when a message was sent to him was, tell that fox Herod. There you have the consummation of the character of Edom in Herod. And on the other hand, you've got the consummation of the spiritual character and values in Jacob or Israel in Jesus. Today, of course, you've still got the animosity, as I have said, in the Jew and in the Arab. It's all summed up in a word of God. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There's a world of meaning in that phrase. Scripturally, Edom speaks of the age-abiding conflict between the spirit on the one hand and the flesh on the other. The world on the one hand and the Lord and his own on the other. It's the age-abiding conflict between what we call the good seed and the bad seed. If you like, the spiritual man and the natural man. This is a picture, of, symbolically, Edom and Jacob represent these two realms, these two people, these two spheres, these two natures. Um, I can't, I think, put that more clearly. I would like just to say this that it doesn't only represent it personally, but generally. In other words, Edom speaks of the world in general. It can also speak of the flesh in me. It can speak of the flesh in me. It can speak of the flesh in general. On the one hand, uh, the carnal man, and the other, the saved man. Or it can speak, if you like, of the terrible conflict between just simply the spirit warring against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Um, this book sets forth not only the conflict, but the difference. And not only the difference, but the end. The, the, the ends of these two, Esau's end and <coughs> Jacob's end, how different they were. Esau or Edom in scripture is a type always of the flesh life. It doesn't matter where you turn, it's a picture of the flesh life. Everything about Eden speaks of the flesh life. Everything. The, it, his pride, his security, his independence, his cruelty when it suited him, his avarice when it came to self-interest, his preparedness to sweep everything aside if it didn't suit him to get what he wanted, his indulgence, all these things speak of the natural man in his battle against God. You can see it also in the lack of human compassion, the lack of sensitivity. The character of Esau above all typifies it. Of course, Edom came out of Esau. Esau Edom is only the extension of Esau. But you know, when you look back, what do you find in Esau? You find indulgence. It was his indulgence that wrecked his, any spiritual value, any sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in him. 
It was his profanity. He's called a profane person in the New. What is profanity? Now listen carefully. What is prof profanity? Is despising, despising the things of God, talking loosely, unguardedly, uh, irreverently about those things of God. It's the kind of attitude that we often have when we almost curse the Lord. Curse the Lord. Why has he done so and so to me? If he saved me, why doesn't he do so and so? The despising of the profanity. It's that sort of uh, attitude that says, oh, you don't have to go that way. You don't have to go. What's all this talk about suffering? What's all this talk about cost? What's all this talk about having to be devastated? It's nonsense. Profanity. It's the thing that believes it sees more clearly than the man who's been broken in the hands of God. It is the thing that has no sensitivity to spiritual values, which has an inverted sense of values. Everything is put on the temporal upon the earthly, upon the seen, upon the felt, upon the naturally understood, upon the thing which is rational. That's Esau. Esau is just the personification of that spirit and character. For a morsel of meat, he sold his birthright. He was more interested he came in when he saw that pottage. He said, I couldn't care less about anything else. Give it to me. Do you know, he doesn't even say he called it food. He just said to Jacob, that red, that red stuff, that red stuff. <laughs> That's literally. And Jacob said to him, sign your birth for your birthright. Give me your birthright. Today, swear to me today. To give me, and then I will give you the food. I won't give it to you otherwise. And Esau couldn't care less about his birthright. He said, of course you can have it. Signed it when later it says he sought with tears a place for repentance, he found none. It's a terrible picture of profanity which flings away the things of God and finds too late that it has cancelled out things of tremendous value. Well, there you are. That's what this little book is all to do with. The character of Edom and Esau, the character of the natural man, the character of the flesh. It's all very well to look at the world, look down our nose at the world and say, well, of course, the world's like this, but what about it in ourselves? What about this very thing, this very character in our own flesh? It's there latent, if not blatant, in every one of us. Actually there within. Ready to strike, ready to rise, ready to get on top, ready to be active ready to govern and control us, if only we will let it. That's what's set forth and set out in this little <coughs> It's the character of this kind of man, the character of Edom. All symbolizes the flesh life, all symbolizes the world. Oh, if we could only just see that. Thus, this little book defines the principle of the flesh life, it defines the methods of the flesh life. It's very interesting. It's got a lot to say about the methods of the flesh life, which come pretty, pretty near the bone. 
uh, it describes the inevitable harvest and end of the flesh life. Do you know the little word that could be written over this book, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It also reveals the ultimate triumph. Now this is the one, this is the thing I love about this little book. It reveals the ultimate triumph of God's Jacob. It's a wonderful thing that you've got her set over against this man Esau, a man like Jacob, who's no better than Esau at all. If in anything, he might be worse than, Jake, than Esau. But it reveals to us that the ultimate triumph of God's Jacob-like people is through suffering. They come to glory through suffering, and God uses the Esau to perfect the Jacob. He takes hold of the very thing which is destined for destruction and uses it to break and purge and transform his Jacob-like people. What a wonderful picture then you've got. But just wait, what after all is so different about Jacob? He was not a very nice character. There was some, uh, I mean, after all, if one had to choose between Esau and Jacob, I'd like to know how many, if we really saw the two men, how many of us would have chosen Esau? The sportsman, the hunter, the rough man, but nevertheless a man. A man who was quite direct, quite frank. If he wanted something, well, he wanted it. And if he didn't want to have anything to do with it, he wouldn't have anything to do with it. And on the other hand, there's that rather soft, deceiving type of man uh, that's smooth and suave and very sympathetic seemingly but oh you've got to watch him you've got to watch him he'll sell you if you're not careful he'll be very very careful what after all is so different about Jacob just one thing only one thing he recognised the superiority of spiritual value he recognized the superiority of spiritual and eternal values. He knew what was incumbent and inherent in that birthright. He knew. He knew that by getting the birthright he wasn't gaining any temporal blessing. But he was, he was obtaining something eternal. Something heavenly. Something that would put his name down to the church of God forever. He knew it. And you see, there is that recognition of those spiritual values, the superiority of them. And it is upon that that God in grace works. Because the man recognizes that and goes after that, in spite of what he is, God takes hold of him in grace and leads him and breaks him and transforms him and makes him into Israel in the end. You see, this is the amazing message of Obadiah. There's a world of meaning in that little word. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. How can God love Jacob? How can God love a twister? Do you know that his name means twister? Supplanter. Grabber is the word. Because when he got hold of his brother's heel as, as they were born, he was called the one who tries to get hold and pushes out the way. That was what his name meant, Jacob. 
supplanter. Supplanter by grasping, by grabbing. What a name! Why does God love Jacob? Because God has his eye upon Israel in Jacob. God's got the eye on what he's going to do in Jacob because there is a recognition of spiritual values. He's not profane. He might be everything else, but he's not profane. He has the most amazing, the most amazing sensitivity to spiritual things. That's the remarkable fact about Jacob. And do you know that when the Lord revealed to him the thing that he said, Oh, how I fear this place. There was no profanity about him. Nothing irreverent, see, about Jacob. Well, I could, we could say a lot more about that. We must also note that it's in Mount Zion that Jacob escapes. It's a place and a way of escape. But more, it's a means by which he positively possesses the inheritance of God. Isn't that wonderful that it says, in, but in Mount Zion there shall be those that escape. You see, for Jacob, there's only one place of escape on the earth. Only one place. It's in Mount Zion. If Jacob will only get into Mount Zion, he'll be, he'll be saved. He'll be delivered from himself. And not only negatively delivered from himself, but he'll be taken over to the possession of the inheritance. He will become Israel and possess the purpose of God. But it's in Mount Zion. Thus, we discover that the final outcome of everything in this book is that Jake, Jacob, God loves into Israel, but Esau goes into destruction. Now what about the outline of this book? We have just a few moments when we can look at these verses. The outline is very simple. It's only twofold, as we would expect in so, so small a book. The first 16 verses we have entitled The Judgment and Destruction of Esau Declared and the last verses from 17 to 21 The Deliverance and Triumph of Jacob uh, Promised. Now if you will just take your Bibles will you just look at a few things I shall have to very quickly just move through them but I want you to get hold of this because it's a great lesson and I would like you to understand that a little book like Obadiah has a lot to say to us and to the world. You see, the first thing you've got here is the principle of the flesh life. What is the principle of the, of the flesh life? It's threefold. Now, just listen to this. First, the principle of the flesh life is pride. Now, it doesn't matter where you look, pride is the principle of the flesh life. What is pride? It is self-centeredness. I. I. That's pride. The pride of thy heart has deceived thee. The, it's, the principle of the flesh life is pride, which completely deludes a person who is in it. If we have pride in our hearts, we're very usually unaware of it. It's there, it's deceived us, and we don't know. Our arrogance, our presumption, our profanity, our irreverence, our despising of spiritual things, is all because of the I in me. We think we're something. We think we know. We think we've got the answer. We think we understand better than anyone else. That's Edom, you see? Pride of heart. The second thing you'll find in, in verse 3 is... Self-confidence, listen to this, uh, you who live in the clefts of the rock, 
whose dwelling is high, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? That's self-confidence. Self-confidence is the principle of the flesh life. Oh, yes, it is. It's impregnable. Once you get a self-confident person, you have someone who's impregnable. Pride and self-confidence linked together make a person impregnable. Just like Edom, locked away in their fastnesses. They can't be got at. They can't be assaulted. They're inviolate. And then self-deification. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, well, of course, the Obadiah knew exactly what he's talking about when he talked about the eagle. Everywhere in Scripture, the eagle is a symbol of deity. Do you know what the principle of the self-life is, of the principle of the flesh? It's self-deification. What is self-deification? I would like to know how many of us are at present in this state. What does it mean? It just means that Jesus is not Lord. You are Lord. Man was made to be ruled and governed by God. When you and I govern ourselves, we have deified ourselves. We have become gods to ourselves. This is the principle of the, of the flesh life. This is the thing that in the end must reap judgment. Now the next thing you will find is the manifestation of the flesh life from verse 8 to verse 14. How do you find this life being manifested? How does it manifest itself? Listen to it. The standard by which it uh, governs, the, the way we see it, is earthly wisdom. Oh my, this is a picture of our own flesh life. Earthly wisdom. You know the people who say, oh, they've got so much knowledge, they know everything, they understand, they have been in the world and they've see, got it all earthly wisdom. It's that thing which is devilish, says James, devilish, from beneath, factious, wicked, devilish, sensual. The wisdom which is from above is pure, and peaceable, and so is righteousness. So you see, here you've got a wisdom in verse 8, it's called, this is the manifestation of the flesh life, is a kind of worldly wisdom don't think that the flesh life is ignorant and silly. The Lord Jesus said the children of this world in their way are much wiser than the children uh, of heaven, of God. Worldly wisdom is, is a manifestation of the self-life. And you will always find that the more worldly wise a person is, the more proud and self-confident and arrogant they are. And then you will find the method of the flesh life. What is the method of the flesh life? Violence. Oh, you said, of course not. Don't be saying It's violence. The method of the flesh life is always violence. You can be violent in a very humble way, so-called. Seemingly, you can be awfully sweet, but in fact you're being violent. You see, the method of the flesh life is having its own way, whatever the cost. If it serves you to be apparently humble, be apparently humble to get your own way. But if it serves you to be arrogant, be arrogant. Get your own way. That's the method of the flesh life. Self in every way, you see. Then you will find the character of the self-life in <coughs> manifestation. It's self first and self second. Self third and others possibly fourth. 
is beautifully put here. First of all, Edom sees the destruction of Jerusalem and they stand aloof. They stand aloof. We won't do anything. Oh, but we all say, why? A little later on we discover they go in and loot the place. They ransack it. Why are they standing aloof? Oh, this is the manifestation of a character. We apologise to the listener, but the last ten minutes of Lance's talk was not recorded on the original tape.